Moss Eisley Spaceport. You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. It's the Star Wars Creature Cantina that you put together. Action figures each sold separately. You can make them move on revolving discs with the action lever. You can even make them fall. Gotcha, Hammerhead. Got him. I told you not to follow me, Greedo. You owe us money, Han Solo. You're not going to collect this time. Wow, what a weird place. Kenner's new Star Wars Creature Cantina. Action figures sold separately. <laughs> fans and move milkers everywhere welcome to episode number 121 of blast points this is jason and this is gabe and this week we are honored to be joined by a very special guest the one and only mr tom spina thank you it's great to be here well tom thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here at blast points we know you're an extremely busy guy so for the folks out there in a listening audience that may not know the reason why you're so awesome, tell us, tell us what you're all about. Uh, I don't know if this qualifies as awesome, but uh, uh, so, oh boy, Star Wars has been a part of my life for a very long time. And I'm very fortunate that in my work life, I get to sort of play around in Uncle George's sandbox, as we call it. Uh, so folks might know me uh, from Tom Spina Designs, which is one of my companies that's an effect shop slash restoration station slash uh, theming and sculpture studio. It's a Swiss Army knife studio, the way a lot of effect shops are. And we do literally just about anything creative there, whether it's uh, bronze busts, wax museum figures, making monsters, uh, giant foam sculptures and restoring original movie props, you know, for places like the Lucasfilm archives, whatever, nobody cares. Uh, and, uh, and at Tom Spina designs, we got known for recreating, uh, the cantina aliens, which we have been asked to do on numerous occasions, which is sort of like my dream ever since I was five. Uh, and, the other company I run is Regal Robot, and Regal Robot is a, a still relatively new uh, 
endeavor of mine. And it took some of the stuff we were doing at TSD, making cool themed home decor and furniture for people, uh, really over the top stuff like the famous Han Solo and Carbonite desk and the uh, Millennium Falcon flying through the asteroids as a coffee table. Uh, and put that together with some more uh, affordably priced and cool stuff for folks to get. And now we got the license from Lucasfilm and Disney to make officially licensed uh, Star Wars themed home decor and furniture. And it's really wild, really cool stuff. And we even can do custom things for people. Uh, so a lot to say there. Um, you're right. I'm a busy guy. I spend most of my time just explaining what I do. It, it just eats up all of my time these days. Um but yeah, so that's that's where folks might know me from. I've always been fascinated with the the custom idea. You know, if like my wife is telling me like we really need a new kitchen table, and in the back of my head, I'm like, I really love Grand Moff Tarkin. So you get the yeah, you get the meeting table with the little thing in the middle and the lights at each station. You get the the Death Star meeting chairs with the the sort of formed wood with the the high back on the one of, for you. I assume Tarkin is you in this scenario. You never know. You never know. <laughs> what are we having? Fried chicken. You may fry when ready. <laughs> yeah, it's just he's sitting in his chair and it's like, knock it off, honey. By the way, Peter Cushing, my favorite actor of all time, uh, legitimately not just saying that, not from just Star Wars. Um, and, and the first human head that I ever sculpted was Peter Cushing. Wow. How did that come? How did that come about? It, uh, well, I just... You know, being a fan of his came about. Uh, Star Wars introduced me to him, um, and then I learned that he was in all of these great old Hammer horror movies. Um, and I was in the eighties. I was, you know, like most kids of the eighties. I thought that a horror movie was Freddy and Jason, not you, Jason. The other with the ch ch ch. Well, well, or unless you have something to share. We don't talk about that. Let, let, the, pa let the past die. <laughs> right. <laughs> Kill it if you have to. But um, the, eventually, a friend of mine's dad introduced me to the old Universal stuff. Uh, and I fell in love with Frankenstein uh, in particular and the Wolfman. Um, and then that led me down the very long path of just horror history. And by the time I hit the... 50s and 60s and even the 70s stuff at Hammer with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, uh, Oliver Reed, all of those. Um, I just was absorbed. And Peter is one of those actors who was always the best actor in uh, any situation he was in. He elevated every movie he touched. And uh, he's, if, if you haven't seen his old stuff, uh, he is a pure joy uh, to watch, especially as Dr. Frankenstein. To me, that's the end. I'll be all. So as a super Peter Cushing fan, what was it like seeing Rogue One for the first time? I was just, you have the unique thing of being a huge fan and actually sculpting his face. So seeing, you know, that. I don't know. I guess. So you guys might not know this. Um, so uh, Pablo Hidalgo is a friend of mine. We've been friends since uh, a very long time ago. We both were obsessed with the things in the background of Star Wars, if that's a thing. Yeah, we know all about that. <laughs> yeah, it's like the coolest thing in the world to look and go like, you know, what's that thing on the wall? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, 
And so we would geek out about that kind of stuff. And over the years, uh, we've done a whole bunch of panels at Star Wars Celebration, and we really tore apart that cantina scene. And we have discovered so much cool stuff. It's it's awesome. Uh, but so I get uh, a call from Pablo, who this is before Rogue One is is uh, finished. It's, it's early in production. And uh, he said... Uh, John Knoll just just popped into my office, stuck his head in, and said, "Hey, do you know anybody that has Peter Cushing's head?" And I said, "I know a guy." Uh, <laughs> so, not just the sculpture I made, which was kind of cool, but you know, early, I wouldn't want that out there. But I happen to have Stuart Freeborn, who everyone knows as the creator of Yoda and Chewbacca and the Ewoks and a bunch of Cantina awesomeness. Um, I have this life cast that Stuart Freeborn made of. Peter Cushing for the 1984 movie Top Secret, uh, where they did a throwback gag to the old Hammer stuff where he's got the big Sherlock Holmes slash Dr. Frankenstein uh, um, magnifying glass and he pulls it away and he's got a giant eyeball. You know, you, you expect that it's just magnified, but it's that's the gag. And so to make the eyeball appliance, they made a mold of Peter Cushing's face. And I have that first generation plaster casting that that Stuart made. Um, so I lent a copy of that to, uh, John Nolan to, um, ILM and as part of their recreating Peter, they use that, that scan of that, uh, that life cast. Um, so I, at the time it was all under wraps. It was like code names and they weren't, they were like, Oh, it's some video game thing. Like, Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be stupid. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was like, it's like, oh, all right. But uh, yeah, no, and then, you know, to see it on screen, it was definitely interesting. It, I was thrown a little bit because I saw um, Stanton's name in the credits uh, before the movie, and I thought, oh, that's amazing. He does the best, by far, hands down, most perfect impression of Peter. And when you hear him do his, uh, his stuff for... Um, rebels and all of that stuff. I think he's always so on point. Um, and then when it wasn't him doing the voice, it threw me for a second. Um, and I just had to kind of settle in. It's like, Oh, it's a little deeper, but you know, the inflection was there. The, the attitude was there and it, it actually worked a lot better than I probably could have thought it would have. Sorry. Was that a long enough answer, by the way? Did I break anything? You could have kept talking for another two hours. So, <laughs> CG Peter Cushing. Yeah, I'd say responsible because of you. Uh, I know I wouldn't dare say that, but I, I'd I'd like to say that I, I you know I had a very very small part in it, and it was just that I happened to you know love him as an actor and have uh, such the similar love and admiration for Stewart's work, and just be fortunate enough to fortunate enough to just own a silly piece of movie history like that, and. Um, was glad that the right people knew it was here because I'd, I'd much rather that, you know, they were able to to work off something like that than, you know, a, a lesser casting that's out there or a fresh digital sculpt, which is cool in its own right. But, you know, you can't beat that sort of first generation, if nothing else, bone reference, you know, like life casts are weird. Anybody out there who does effects work at all or has ever done a life cast or worked on a makeup, um, life casts uh, are 
really tough to work from if you're uh, trying to make a lifelike head out of it. If you, a lot of times I'll see people where they'll take a life cast and then they will uh, make a mold of it and then they'll sculpt in the eyeballs and then they're just like, well, there we go. Now he's alive. But the weight of the material on the actor's face and the fact that they usually lean back a little bit and the droop that happens from that it just always makes people look like mummies, just like, mm, you know. Um, so even with this life cast, they had their work cut out for them. I'm, I'm just amazed at what they really were able to put together with that. And Peter Cushing had, the man had an amazing face. I couldn't even imagine yeah. like starting from scratch to recreate, you know, just the cheekbones alone. Right. Yeah. It's a get more clay. I'm up to the yeah. cheekbones. <laughs> Yeah, and that was the reason I chose him as the first human sculpt for myself because I had done all these monsters and I thought, um, all right, I'm going to push myself. You know, humans are the toughest thing to sculpt by far. Um, and I said, well, Peter's got so much to work with. His beak of a nose that's crooked one way, a brow that's crooked the other way, his mouth that slopes the other way, the deep che uh, sunken cheeks, the giant cheekbones, the, the temple bones – um, it's all of this stuff works together. And he's, he's one of these people where, you know, even as a younger man, he looked old. He always had these really distinct pictures. And it's like, that's, you know, there's your, there's your sculpting tip of the night, folks. You want to do your first human sculpt, find somebody with really extreme features because it just gives you more to, to hook onto. So you're a young kid being in love with monsters, Frankenstein, Wolfman, creatures. How did you how did you take that? How did you take it to the next level where now this is what you do for a living? Where you're dealing with monsters every day? So uh uh I was I was asked to, to talk at my um junior high and high school a while back on on this sort of subject to their like career day or whatever. And um and I thought, well, it's probably inappropriate to tell the kids, drop out of college and join the Muppets. Um and then wait like 15 years and then boom, there it is. So that's, that's the path. There you go. Uh, simple recipe folks. Uh, easy to repeat. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I run into people, you know, with, uh, social media now you run into all these people that you haven't seen for 20, 25 years. Um, and you know, sometimes you'll, you'll see them and they'll be like, Oh, I, I work in an accounting firm now or whatever, or I do this. And you're just like, huh? All right. You know, or I'm a cop. Oh, you. That's a thing. Uh, <laughs> but then I always tell people what I'm doing. And they're like, oh, what are you doing? It's like, oh, I got this studio. And we made monsters and all that stuff. And I go, all right, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I, it's just, I I don't think uh, it's, it's one of those weird things in life where I just, I never really had a question that I was uh, going to do something else. I, I knew Somehow I would be involved in, in uh, television or film or art. Um, and, you know, kind of luckily I found this weird, slightly off to the side thing that's all three. And like, how cool is that? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, the path is, uh, it's not straight. It's not clear. Um, you know, it was, uh, I, I, I'll say this, and this is not, not to get, preachy or to, to overly, um, uh, advise, but it came from doing, uh, and, and it's just as simple as that. Like I, I see, I, we get a lot of people that email looking for advice or they want to get into the business or they want to, uh, they, 
want to do what we do, which is the biggest compliment we can get. Um, and my advice is always, if there's something that you love to do and something that you want to do and make your life, uh, especially nowadays where people can broadcast themselves in a way that we couldn't 30 and 20 years ago, uh, do it. Uh, if you want to sculpt, sculpt. If you want to make movies, make the best, very short, no more than like a minute or two. Nobody has an attention span anymore. Uh, but make the best one or two minute movie you can do. Uh, and make it funny and give it a twist ending. Everybody likes that. Uh, and I, for me, I wanted to do art and puppets and monsters. And uh, my real sort of first break of, of many very lucky breaks was that uh, in college, my friends and I made a, a Muppet Show episode uh, because we grew up in the 70s and the Muppets were like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> um, so we would we made a deal where we could go in and use the television studio at the college when nobody was there over Christmas break. Uh, we were absolutely allowed. We didn't sneak in. I uh, would never recommend such a thing. Uh, and we, I made a whole bunch of Muppet replicas and we performed them and we made a whole episode just for the fun of it. And it turned out kind of fun. We, we had it in like the school, you know, TV uh, festival or whatever at the end of the semester. And I said, you know, I'm going to send a copy of this to the Henson folks and not looking for a job. I like literally didn't have any expectation whatsoever, but I just said, you know, Jim was such a special spirit and such an inspiration uh, to me and uh, th their brand of humor was <laughs> just um, imprinted on me and my friends. Uh, the art of the pun <laughs> is not lost on us. And it was one of these things where we said, you know what, like, all right, let me, I'll, I'll mail a copy in and, uh, out of nowhere, I got a call one night, like 9 p.m. on my house phone, because we had house phones back then. Um, and uh, it was Kevin Clash, who uh, was the chief puppeteer for Sesame Street, was Elmo and a bunch of other characters at that time. Floyd, uh, not Floyd, I'm sorry. Um, oh, darn it. I can't think of his name from Muppets Tonight. But um, anyway, he, uh, he called and... Um, had just a chat about puppetry in general and stuff like that and, and what we had done. And he, then the puppeteers, apparently he saw it and he showed it to everybody there and they loved it. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's really cool. Does that happen? Um, yeah. No big deal. No. Yeah. Uh, and what's the really funny thing is because this is like 1990 something, uh, early nineties, two, three, maybe, uh, I had no idea who Kevin clash was. Uh, you know, I knew Jim Henson. Like, I knew anybody who was in the uh, Muppets and Men book that Christopher Finch wrote. By the way, anybody who's a, a Muppet or a Henson fan, go find it. It's We have the internet now. You can find it. Uh, it's called Of Muppets and Men. I had to take it out of the library at the time, but you can go buy it. And it's and do. It's awesome. It's uh, sort of behind the scenes of the Muppet show, and it's absolutely amazing and inspiring. Um but uh, so, yeah, so I had no idea who Kevin Clash was. I thought I was like, oh, all right. Some production assistant or whatever called me like that's neat. Um, he wasn't using the Elmo voice. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, strangely, no. Um, and then so I eventually uh, figured that out. Like the next day I said it to someone who 
had been reading the credits on recent Sesame Street episodes. And I was like, ah, nuts. You know, there's a missed opportunity. Um, so I, I went to the city uh, and this is, you know, make something, do something. Here's the second part, do something. I, um, I went to New York City where, where Henson had their headquarters in this beautiful townhouse on 69th Street, which they've since uh, sold. And um, I dropped off a letter for Kevin Clash. Uh, I, I half expected him to be there. He wasn't. But a woman uh, named Leslie Converse, who was uh, an exec there, uh, brought me in and said, hey, I'm sorry, Kevin's not here to give this to, um, but it's nice to meet you. Let me let me show you around. Uh, so she took me through the whole building, showed me Jim's office, showed me all this wonderful art that they, that was there, uh, props, puppets, uh, their awards, um, the the townhouse was amazing. There was this wonderful stained glass uh, window. Everything was custom. You know, everything was creative. There was no uh, creative opportunity that wasn't taken. Um, and she introduced me to people and she said, oh, this is Tom Spina. He's a puppeteer. And I was like, wow, yeah, I am. I've never said that to anyone, but this is, this is, that's, that's a thing. That's cool. Um, and she invited me back to tour the workshop because she had heard that I built the, the puppets on our thing. Um, and from there I met, uh, this wonderful man named Ed Christie, who I also recently reconnected with. Uh, thank you, internet. Um, and, uh, Ed was, you know, uh, very lucky for me, impressed with these terrible Polaroids I had taken of my so-so puppets. Um, and uh, he asked me things using very basic industry terms that I didn't know, like patterning, um, which, you know, he's like, oh, are these patterned foam? I'm like, I, I don't know. I took sheet foam and I cut it until it looked like Statler and Waldorf. You yes, of, of course. That's what everyone does, right? <laughs> what we in the business do. Exactly. It's like, what kind of glue did you use? I used a stapler. Oh, we'll teach you some things. Come, come with me. Uh, but he gave me a job as uh, an intern, as a wrangler on Sesame Street, uh, which uh, I assisted a man named Laurent Lynn uh, for the, I believe it was the 35th anniversary season. And I got to uh, play with puppets for that so that semester uh, and gets college credit for it. So, but yeah, and all that just came from from doing stuff because I thought it was cool and and because it made me happy. Um, and uh, I I just genuinely very lucky. You spend the semester working on Sesame Street, a literal dream come true. How did it go then from that to restoring mass and how did how, how did that chapter get started the long way um i so uh did my semester there i started a company making puppets and uh we actually had characters on qvc that were selling kids toys and stuff uh with uh, a guy named victor yared who uh i met at sesame who, who started this company with me and a few other friends and, and victor was uh and is an amazing puppeteer he works with the henson company a bunch of others um but uh so we had these characters on QVC. Uh, we, I got a job in the television industry after working numerous other, you know, miscellaneous type jobs on the side. Uh, but I got a job uh, as a technical director for uh, 
uh, in TV, which means I sat at the switcher that you use to blow up all the round. <laughs> no joke. Like we'd like, it's like, okay, three, two, one, go to commercial. And we're all like, hmm. <laughs> and looking around and giggling and like the sports AD, like guys like, what, what are you guys doing? And I'm like, ah, don't worry about it. We got this. <laughs> but, uh, so while I was there though, um, this thing called the internet happened. Um, and it was a neat job because it, it was demanding only when graphics and commercials happened. The rest of the time, it was relatively low key. And I had a lot of time to think and plan and dream. Um, and I got to meet folks through the internet who were really into making replica movie props. Uh, have you guys ever heard of the, uh, the replica prop forum, the RPF? Yes. Amazing place. So Brandon Allinger, who's now at Prop Store of London, started the RPF. Uh, late 90s, 98, I think, maybe 97. Um, and I met him through that. And Chris Trevis, uh, Chris Reif, Art Andrews, a bunch of other guys, uh, granddaddies in the field of uh, making replica props and researching this stuff. Uh, Chris Trevis, Chris Reif have a site called The Parts of Star Wars. If anybody is fascinated by movie props in Star Wars, check it out. It's amazing. They went and figured out like, what everything was made from. <laughs> Super cool. Uh, but so through the RPF, I started collecting replica props and I found people who wanted what I made uh, because I was still fascinated with monsters and sculpting them. And I sort of had taken it upon myself to start sculpting all the cantina monsters um, and uh, found people who said, those are really cool. Can, can I get one of those for my collection? I'm like, someone wants it. All right. You know, I just made it for me. Um, cause I wanted it, but it turns out like there's other people who think like me. Um, and I met a lot of them on the RPF. Uh, and so from there I, I started to get into, uh, I, I learned, um, that you could not just get a replica prop, but, uh, if you really, you know, worked hard and, and researched and things like that, you might even find a prop that was used in the movie. Um, and that was really neat. Um, and uh, that also was this whole group of collectors that did that. It's a very tight-knit community. It's not a ton of people that, that collect that sort of stuff. Um, and through that, I started to see that there were these pieces that weren't really um, holding up well, and they, they needed special care. Um, and I sort of thought, okay, someone, someone needs to figure this out. Uh, and you know, why are these things deteriorating? What can be done? I had a few pieces like that and I thought, well, I can experiment kind of on my stuff. I don't want to do it on anyone else's. And I, I was very confident fixing things. I had always been a fixer. I'd always, um, tinkered. Uh, oh gosh. You guys remember the elusive concepts Yoda that came out in the nineties? Um, oh, I sure do. Actually, I'm I'm looking at my elusive concepts, Admiral Akbar, right now. <laughs> he's he's seen better days, but well, I know a guy. Um, well, yeah, no, and it's <laughs> it's funny. So I people would get those Yodas, and they were like, you know, I, I mean, the sculpt was really good. Uh, was that Mario Chiodo did the uh, the sculpt on that head? Um, and I I always thought the head sculpt was good, but I always thought the body was a little weird and the hand pose was strange. The cane needed work. The hair was bad. And like, so I got one and it's, you know, here's this 
priceless $300 collectible that I had. Um, and immediately I stripped the hair off it, cut the eyes out, pulled the robe <laughs> off, made a new can. Like I totally reworked the thing. And everybody's like, you're going to ruin it. What are you doing? And then I finished and everybody was like, hey, ruin mine too. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you make things, you learn to fix things. There's no such thing as a, a, a perfect casting, whether it's resin or latex or silicone, whatever you work with. You're always patching something. You're always repairing something. You're doing a makeup. You're always hiding a scene. And so I said, you know, I can apply some of that skill to restoration. Um, and I can look at what Jack Pierce did. Uh, who you know did Frankenstein and the Wolfman and all these classic films? And when he did Frankenstein, there was no appliance there. There's no foam rubber. It was built up every day with cotton and collodion. And I said, well, if he can sculpt a, a brow on Boris Karloff out of nothing, you know, maybe I can find a way to archivally sculpt something onto these pieces when things are missing, so that we're not molding and casting things, and we're not doing, you know, we're we're being sympathetic to the piece and restoring it rather than just redoing it completely. Um, and it turned out to be something I had a knack for and other people found out that. And, uh, very quickly, um, I became kind of the go-to source for that stuff. And then very slowly, um, trained a lot of other people to, that, uh, work with me, some amazing, amazing artists. And, uh, now have a, a really great crew that's dedicated to, you know, helping keep this stuff around. I think we first learned of some of your work where we, I think where is at Celebration Anaheim. We went to the uh, secrets of the, the Cantina panel and that blew our mind. And I think like before... It, we, we seriously, we walked out of that panel different people. Wow, I'll, that's a huge compliment. Thank you. It, it really did because it was like four days of mind blowing, and I think that panel blew our mind more than anything else. It it was this. I saw the crazy stuff in the backgrounds and the weird creatures, and it's like that's the stuff we love. And it was like, wait, there's other people. They're doing a whole panel on this stuff. Like that's you know, that's like that's why we're here. You know, sign us up for this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I was always disappointed that there wasn't more like it. It's the reason that panel exists. Pablo and I said, like, well, what's the panel we want to see? Because it felt like all the panels – I feel there is a huge segment of the Star Wars fan base that is underserved right now. And those are the people that are equally, if not more so, enamored with the behind the scenes. And just the fact that these movies got made and how that happened. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, as well as the story and the fun of it and all of that, great. And the final product, fantastic. But to me, endless, endless fascination comes from the fact that these things even happened. Um, it's so cool. Well, I'm glad you guys liked it. Thank you. That's, that's very nice. Of yeah, we. I think we. Yeah, we went in as two people, and I think we left different people. <laughs> yeah. <we> were- <laughs> We'll put a warning up next time. I'm sorry. I, like bosom buddies kind of different people? Or is this like a like, – did, did you, you guys didn't whiz in an enchanted fountain or something, did you? Pretty close. Pretty close. Uh, all right then. How did these panels come about? Because we, you know, we, we also went to the one in Orlando last year, which was equally mind-blowing. And 
I want to go more in depth on some of those uh, as much as we can, but uh, how did the, the secrets of the Cantina panel come about? How did you get get friendly with Pablo? Because I think you and Pablo have a great like rapport, the two of you. Like you guys should have like a cooking show on the Food Network or something, you know? Like not even Star Wars related. Like if I if I had a cooking show, it'd be like you know cooking as if you're a six year old with a charge account. Now let me take you over to the hot dog yeah. bar. <laughs> um, No, that's fantastic. I absolutely uh, love and adore Pablo and his wife, Kristen, and all their animals. Um, He's, uh, you know, here's another Star Wars success story. Somebody who just took their passion and with uh, a lot of uh, uh, persistence put himself where he 100% truly belongs in this world. Um, he and I met because he had a website called the Indexed Trilogy. Uh, that was a lie. Uh, it was actually only partially indexed first movie. Um, <laughs> but he had his sights set on doing the rest of the trilogy, and I admired what he was trying to do. Uh, but what he did was he took the first movie, Star Wars, and he broke it down shot by shot. And with each shot, he just put a little comment or a note. Um, and usually it was pointing at something in the background and saying, oh, you know, this, this guy you see in the background is also in the cantina over here. Or, um, you know, this is from a different scene, but they used it here later. Or, um, my favorite, uh, okay. So have you noticed, and I never noticed it until I saw what, uh, what Pablo wrote. So there was one of them called life debt, schmife debt. And, the the frame that this was on is when Greedo puts the gun up to the solo's chest and he's like, you know, going somewhere solo and all of that stuff. I'm not going to do the voice. Uh, if you watch that shot, Chewie is right next to Han when that happens and just keeps walking. Like, oh, you're on your own. No, no, no. Like, old guy with a laser sword. Sure. But this guy with a blaster, uh-uh. He looks like he might shoot first. I uh, clearly mistaken, but But so that right there, as soon as I saw the words life debt, schmife debt, I'm like, I like this guy. I got to meet him. Uh, So I I made it a point to reach out to him, try and get in touch. And um, and and that was that was the, the spark of it. And it wasn't really until about eight or 10 years later that, you know, we. Uh, had more regular kind of interaction. And uh, he was the person who uh, he and Steve Sansweet actually uh, recommended my company to Volkswagen when they wanted to recreate the cantina for a Super Bowl spot in 2011. Um, it was late 2011. And that was uh, a forever in his debt. There, there's your life debt. Unless a, a Rodian comes along with a, an operable trigger finger, then, you know, he's on his own. So yeah, that was, that's, that's that. And it's just, you know, like-minded. Uh, I, I, he has a really, really great sense of humor and I just enjoy being around that. And, um, and yeah, we, we can both talk. So, you know, we get on stage and we nerd out and we look at the stuff that we would be doing anyway. In the the secrets of the cantina, they're usually like, were they like an hour long or a little over an hour? Yeah, one was ninety minutes. Uh, we the, another was an hour. We did, I think. I don't know if this was just Salt Lake or if we might have done this for 
Orlando too, but for Salt Lake Comic Con last year, we broke it into two sections so there could be two one-hour panels, uh, one on the UK crew and one on the US crew and how their shot, uh, shooting went. And that actually was really cool. We got to, to pull a lot of stuff that got cut in previous panels um, and revisit stuff from earlier ones. And then also even had time for about five minutes of questions at the end, which is unheard of for wow, us. Wow, those, those lucky Salt Lake people. Feel free for the next celebration to do like a two-day long panel because <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll sleep on the sidewalk for that one. Oh, you know we could you'll be like the, uh, those two weird guys i talked to are still out there right and they brought a fountain with them i don't get it but all right you know don't look them in the eyes just don't right look. yeah yeah not while they're doing anything but yeah no it's it's that would be uh it's it's i think i i really really enjoyed the the two separate panel version of it um it really gave us a chance to kind of focus in on stuff and and um what's amazing to me is that each one we do i think well we'll just start with the last one and i'll add two or three slides you know and and there's, there's our next panel uh and it always winds up being all right i gotta get rid of a bunch of stuff to squeeze in all this new stuff we found and i like how are we still wringing that cantina cloth and getting stuff out of it? Um, it's it's amazing and just it's, it's so fun. So there's so much information packed into these hour ninety minutes. There's some topics we would love to go over more. Where like we, I know we've been sitting in the audience and like afterwards we walked out being like, wait, wait, what about like that one part where they mentioned really quick? What was up with that? If we if we shoot through some topics, feel free to ex- expand on whatever whatever you feel free to, to to expand with. First topic: the UK uglies. Oh, big fan. <laughs> <laughs> so some some of our listening audience may not know the UK uglies. I've thought about them every day since 2015, and and me even longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> An unhealthy amount of time spent on that. Uh, yeah, do you do you want to give them the, the the groundwork there, and then we'll dive in. It was an actors' guild in the UK, made up specifically of what's a nice way to put it: unusual looking, striking, <laughs> unique people that would be good to do a first sculpt of. That's, that's <laughs> an excellent way to put it. Oh, yes, it was a, a it was an agency. Uh, the ugly agency, um, and actually, uh, we come to find out there was uh, they, they had a sister agency, and uh, that was for uh, models. And the the Tonica sisters came from the other agency, which was called the Pretty Agency. So it was the Pretty Ugly Agency. <laughs> no, there wasn't like there. It wasn't named after like Mister Ugly was the was the owner, like Steve Ugly or anything. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like everybody there, like he just thought everybody looked good. No. And it's like, yeah, some, some of them were pretty, some of them were ugly. Some of them were pretty ugly. Uh, that was their commercial from 77. No, I made that up. It's not a thing. Um, so yeah, that was the agency. And, and, uh, it even runs to this day, uh, which is amazing. Uh, and, and we were able to, to go through and figure out that, you know, about, and it turns out some of the humans didn't come from the ugly agency, which makes me wonder where were those people? You know? <laughs> like, who found them? But no, um, 
actors with character, we call them. Um, but it was, you know, they found some really unique people to be in that cantina, which was awesome. Uh, it's it one of those, one of the things I like about that scene, one of the things that I think surprised even us when we started counting heads, um, there's way more humans than there are aliens. Um, and I wouldn't have guessed that. I remember, yeah, I remember you guys saying that and that still blows my mind, but it's like, it's true. Yeah. Cause that's the thing. Like once you watch the secrets of the cantina panel at a celebration or uh, the comic con, and then you go back and watch the cantina scenes, you're just like, Oh my God, it's true. All of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was good. Did you point at someone when you did that? I felt like you pointed. <laughs> I felt the, the old Harrison Ford. Yeah, and 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 it's especially in the UK shots. If you mix in the the um, the the US aliens, and if you go by, so there's there's two different ways to count aliens. There are number of characters or implied characters, and then there is the number of masks and costumes they actually made, because they shoot the pickle-headed guy on, at the bar. Uh, with the gas mask on, uh, called the Plutonian by Stewart's crew. Nabrin leads by people who uh, really want to annoy guys like me. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm like, it, it, crew names are nothing. Um, we need a hand signal. But the, um, so the pickle guy, you you know, he's at the bar, but then there's like other shots where it looks like he's sitting in a booth while he's still at the bar. So, you know, there's two of them or there's three of them. But it's just there was only one mask and they just moved the guy around. Um, the goat guy from uh, the Baker pickup shots in the U.S., um, he um, he shows up in three different outfits, um, but it's only one mask. And, and one of the outfits is borrowed off a different alien. So, you know, he's just... They're just trading heads um, and moving people around and filling space. And it's like, well, you know, now there's three of that guy. Uh, but really, there's only one that was made. So uh, it's 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 tricky to get an accurate count. Uh, and it's and everybody sort of has to we probably have to come up with some sort of like uh, cantina metrics or something like, OK, what qualifies as a character? What qualifies as a, a costume, et cetera? But yeah, so it's certainly in the UK, many more humans than than Stewart had aliens. So, um, and and some of them were pretty ugly. Next next one is a maybe they're together, maybe they're buddies. Little Flash Gordon and Little Aunt Beru. That was a mystery that Pablo and I were very anxious to um, to sort of clear up um, because there was. So I don't know exactly where this information came from initially. So uh, the, the Flash Gordon midget, quote, unquote, and I'm, that's just the term that was on the paperwork, uh, was played by a guy named Marcus Powell uh, as a little person actor who uh, uh, John Molo's notes list him as Flash Gordon midget. And uh, his real-life girlfriend played Cabe uh, for some of the scenes, um, Gilda Cohen. And uh, Rusty Goff also is said to have played Cabe because Gilda wasn't comfortable in the mask uh, after the first day of shooting. Um, so somehow uh, this other guy who's at the bar, who's very unique looking, came from the ugly agency, um, 
was listed as Gilda Cohen for years. And Pablo and I are like, that's not Gilda Cohen. For starters, you know, she she's she's Cabe, and we have another picture of her, and she doesn't look like that. And then it turns out that's not even a girl, that's a guy. Um, and the guy's name is Jeffrey Moon. Uh, and eventually we got to um, clear up that mystery. We got to show everybody like, okay, this is Gilda Cohen. This is Jeffrey Moon. He is definitely not Gilda Cohen. He came from the ugly agency. We have since, and I'll, we'll show this at a future one, I'm sure, found some cool, uh, his agency headshot and stuff like that from the ugly agency, which is real fun. There's a picture of him and a monkey because, of course, there is. Um, and Thank you for the warning because uh, we'll, we'll make sure to do some stretches before the next uh, panel. That's right. Yes, please. Uh, monkeys make everything better. So, and and we what we got to do was uh, Pablo and I love to name characters that somehow have escaped naming uh, which is amazing that anyone has at this point. And so we named that character, I believe uh, it was Demano. Um, now I'm going to have to look it up now. <laughs> um, ah, here we go. Yeah, Demano, where did it go? Demano Deo Mele. Um The Mailey was actually named for uh, Nick Mailey, who worked on Stuart Reborn's team. Uh, and is a friend of mine and uh, an unsung hero of that crew and also one of the co-creators of Yoda. Um, and the rest of the name was named after a fella who was in the audience. Um, so now that guy's got, got this weird-looking Star Wars actor named after him. And we've done that for a few people now, and that's really, really fun. But yes, so that's that's the Gilda Cohen answer. <laughs> Next one, th- and this blew my mind. The the strange connection between the Star Wars Cantina aliens and Larry Cohen's classic killer baby movie, It's Alive. Oh, yes. So <laughs> there's sort of – there's two connections here. Um, and good on you for knowing that's a classic. Uh, so um, so Rick Baker did the makeup effects for that movie and made the creepy baby. Um and the baby was made in two scales, one uh, small, like sort of life size and one oversized for his wife at the time to wear um, as a costume. And the baby had these very distinct claws, uh, two fingered hands with long talons on coming out of the tips of each finger. Um, and they're great because two fingered hands are the best. Anytime we're making an alien and there's an opportunity to say, like, hey, can we give this guy two fingers? It, that means you've got two less fingers to have to seam up and clean and sculpt and all that stuff, and the mold's easier. Um, so uh, those hands turn up on a, a bunch of the aliens. Um, let's see here. Uh, the Cyclops guy has a pair of them. Uh, the goat, the goatal or goatal has those kind of hands. Um, the, is the Cyclops guy Don, the Don Rickles alien? No, no, no. Uh, no, the Don Rickles guy is the, they called him Horntop or Don Rickles, which is my favorite name out of all of them. Uh, but he does have two eyes, uh, but he's got one horn. Uh, so I can see where you get confused. Um, the Cyclops guy is the green Cyclops. So it was based on a mask Rick did 
of the one-eyed centaur from one of Ray Harryhausen's movies, uh, the Sinbad movies. Um, I think it was Golden Voyage of Sinbad. And Rick made that to show the producer and try and get uh, a license to do that as a mask, and the producer turned him down. Uh, so they pulled a copy out of that mold, and Lane Liska modified it into the really bitchin' green Cyclops. Um, and he did a lot of modification, but it's it's that's one of my favorites. Um, uh, oh, the the Bat Demon guy, as Rick calls him, also known as a Deathel or Arleel Shrews or something. Um, I like Bat Demon guy. Uh, any any name that has guy at the end of it, I'm good with. Like skull guy, band guy, black-headed guy, brain guy. You know, like that's – you talk to the crew. That's how they talk, and I love it. Um, so the bat demon guy with the glowing red eyes who never should have been cut out of the movie, and he's not a werewolf. I'm sorry, people. Uh, he, uh, he also had those hands. Um, and uh, there's a, a mask known as Yamnose to the crew that Phil Tippett made uh, and played. Uh, and he's, I don't know how to describe him. Uh, the, the, we restored that original mask and, uh, the girls at the shop called it a turd mosquito. Um, <laughs> and they're kind of right. Um, it's got a lot of horns and little hairs and a snoot like a mosquito. And, you know, he's greenish brown. So Yamnos, uh, was, uh, made over one of those baby heads. Uh, and, and that's kind of typical for a shop. If you're going to fabricate a mask, uh, the way that mask was made was it wasn't a clay sculpture in a mold. It was fabricated. So that means that they took uh, foam and sheet, like, uh, like sheet foam rubber and cotton and latex, and they would lay things up on, on a form, and they would just make the mask, and that was it. There wasn't a mold. There wasn't latex casting or uh, what they call slip rubber. Um, so as a fabricated piece, you do need a foundation. And what you would do is just take any mold you have laying around, run a quick copy of it so that you have a shell and then work over that. Um, so that's how Yamnos came to be. They made a shell of, uh, of one of those baby heads and then they turd skeetoed the heck out of that thing. Uh, go Phil. Sorry. Was, was that enough for you, by the way? <laughs> Perfect. So the, our last one, and I don't know how much you can expand on this. Because yeah, we've spent way too much time thinking about this next question. So the the picture of George Lucas sitting on the dewback, is there like a whole collection of Lucas just sitting on all the props and all the things? Like, How great would that be? <laughs> we did find, um, I, I don't know if we did it at one of the shows, but we did find a collection of him pointing at things. And... Oh, <laughs> And we found another of like him doing like the pew pew gun. Um, Cause there was a couple of shots of him, like I guess showing Greedo how to hold the blaster or whatever, but there's like two or three in a row. And it's just like sad George Lucas holding the pew pew gun. But it's <laughs> um, how, the, how cool is that do back photo with George Lucas on it? It's one of the best photos I've ever seen of anything. <laughs> I mean, What's funny is we found that picture and we didn't we didn't notice George right away. You know what I mean? Like it's just like, oh cool, yeah, the, there's the wreckage and the dewback and there's the cantina and holy crap, George Lucas is riding the dewback. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you do like the eye rub and you look again and you're like, ah, maybe that's somebody else in the desert 
wearing jeans and sneakers and a red checkered shirt and a hat. Okay, yeah, no, that's George Lucas. Damn it. <laughs> so I'm afraid, yeah, there's not much more to that. We we just have that one mysterious photo. I would love a series, though. I love the idea of, like, just a series of George doing mundane things on set. Like, here's George sitting on different, different things. We've got Kirshner sitting on a tauntaun. Um Boy, if we could find like Richard Marquin riding a Rancor, this would be perfect. Here, here's something I have always wondered about, and I think you're one of the only people who can answer this question. A timeline of Cantina mess. So there, there's the movie, there's the Richard Pryor special, there's the holiday special. What's the timeline, and did things get changed from the movie to the Richard Pryor to the holiday special, or what was the order, and how did they all infect each other? So Richard Pryor is in the middle. You are correct. Your line up there is spot on. So you had the movie. You shortly after had the Richard Pryor show, um, and then you know the following fall you have the holiday special. Um, between the movie and Richard Pryor show, the Richard Pryor show, I said, I love that this happened. I love that, you know, they're like, we're going to make a Star Wars spoof. Let's just get the real masks. Like, that's just <laughs> so cool that that's a thing back then. You know, uh, they borrowed a bunch of the real masks and they clearly rented the costumes from Western because there's a uh, Western costume because there's a bunch of Planet of the Apes wardrobe in there. Um, and that's uh, like there's a Dr. Zayas uh, or, well, an orangutan robe. Um, and I think there's a, uh, a gorilla outfit. There's definitely gorilla gloves in it, too, somewhere. Um, and the, the, the original film has stuff rented from there as well, because they've got um, uh, Jaws Purr, the black headed guy there, has a, um, a gorilla robe, uh, not robe, the leather vest uh, and gloves, I believe. And there's the spacesuit that John Berg wears as one of the Duros, and that's one of the spacesuits that was used in Escape from the Planet of the Apes uh, by the apes when they escape. Um, and You're blowing my mind, Tom. You're blowing my mind. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hold it together, man. We got a long way to go. So here's, you know, but here is the major innovation, though, that the prior show brought to the, the table here. And that is Muff Tack in pants. Yes. Um, you didn't have that before. You had you had a pantsless Muff Tack sitting at a table so that nobody could see his bathing suit area. But in the Richard Pryor show, they needed him to be the bouncer and walk around. So they said pants because the costume only had it was from the waist up. You know, Lane Liska made it because it was going to sit him in a booth and you'd never see his legs. And here they get it to the Pryor show and he's got to be fuzz and protect Richard Pryor and uh, you know you got to like how do we fix this and somebody there was just like I got it what what do you got pants <laughs> so sold and that guy I hope got a promotion um, and so not just any pants so pants with big suspenders because how does Muff Tack hold up his pants <laughs> you know like of course he has suspenders so um, I and now here's the really funny thing. Years ago, I believe it's in the Star Wars Chronicles book, there is a partial picture of Muff Tack, and you can see he's got suspenders, and like you could kind of make out that he's wearing pants. <laughs> and for, I had no idea what that was from until, I, gosh, I only rediscovered that Richard Pryor bit 
uh, in the, the, oh gosh, 20, it's like 2010 or 2008 or something like that. Like it was, it was not something that was really well known. And then as soon as I saw it, like, you know, the sparks start going like, Oh my God, that's that photo. You know, <laughs> um, like someday if you ever see footage of George Lucas riding a dewback, you'll just, Oh, there it is. Uh, my life is complete. <laughs> now I know how he felt. Yeah. Um, so then after prior, all those masks went back to Rick Baker and uh, his guys who made the movie. And when the holiday special came up, uh, that's when they took it on themselves to punch up some of the masks. And Stuart sent over uh, some masks for them to use in the holiday special as well. Um, and so things like Walrus Man got a little bit of a paint touch-up. The uh, Hammerhead was repainted and reworked because, uh, as you guys know from the panel, he was barely held together when they were shooting in the first place. Snaggle Tooth got the most uh, substantial rework. Uh, and he turned into the look that everybody knows from the action figure card with the monk's haircut and the more textured skin and all of that stuff. Um, and it's him that actually, you know, lets us know other than that we can now look at release dates. But just looking at Snaggletooth, you can say, oh, well, in Richard Pryor, he wasn't modified yet. In the holiday special, he's modified. So Richard Pryor, therefore, must have come first. Look to Snaggletooth for the answers. Always, always <laughs> check with Snaggletooth. Yeah. So after the holiday special, did these masks then go back to Rick Baker? Yeah, uh, back to Rick, back to Stuart, um, back to the various guys who worked on the film. A lot of times would be gifted stuff back in the day. Um, you know, even then, uh, certainly when the movie was shot, you know, as they're always famous for saying, you know, Star Wars wasn't Star Wars yet. Um, so the movie wrapped and normally that stuff um, – either gets tossed or in the case of effects guys, um, they almost always keep everything they make mostly because they want to reuse it someday. Um, you know, we see a lot of stuff that comes out of movies that, uh, has had the mechs torn out of it because they're like, well, the mask cost us 50 grand to make. Uh, so I just tore the skin off it and I saved the mechanics and it's just like, Oh, somebody really would have loved to have had that skin. Um, but the cool thing is uh, most of the masks from that scene, uh, and this is my own personal obsession is tracking this stuff down. Um, most of the masks from that scene exist today. Uh, most of the creatures uh, that were made for Star Wars um, are still around, which is stunning. Uh, out of all of those different aliens, I, it's really there's. I think I could probably count on on one hand. Uh, the number that are maybe missing, and and there's only two or three that are known to be gone forever. Oh, mate, so they're they like in the hands of uh, private collectors, or um, yeah, uh, there's there's a, a bunch of folks that that have them. There's also you know you get um, people like Bob Burns who actually had some of this stuff at the time of um, Star Wars because they were things made for his Halloween show. Um, things like the bat demon guy, things like the devil guy, which Rich Rick uh, had made for a John Landis movie that never got made called I Was a Teenage Vampire. Uh, it was just a test thing to try and get the movie sold. Uh, the cheap werewolf mask that Rick made himself, like stuff like that that was around that. Um, so Bob had a few of those. Rick had some of those. Rick borrowed stuff and 
used it on Star Wars and then after would give it to Bob. So Bob's got a bunch of that stuff. Uh, the science fiction archives in France, um, Arnaud and Patrice have uh, a fair number of pieces. Jason Joyner has some. I have a few. Um, so a bunch of folks out there. And, and it's kind of a cool little network, you know, like the, the cantina club. <laughs> the, the keepers of the cantina. Yeah, right. Somebody's got to take care of this stuff. Salt Lake City, you guys did a, a panel on Jabba's Palace, right? Yes. Yes, we did. J- Jabba's Palace. Was, so we, we're we equally obsessed with Jabba's Palace and the, the weird mysteries of Jabba's Palace. It's a full of dark corners. And it's, it, we've always said it's interesting because, like, you don't – Jabba's Palace is so dark and there aren't, like, the, you know, the money shots that there are in the cantina or even in Maz's castle or Canto Bight even where it's like, check out this guy. Right. <laughs> Jabba's Palace, except for like Jabba and Bib Fortuna, it's like, oh, what the heck is that over there? How was it different re- doing research to talk about Jabba's Palace versus the cantina? So, um, you know, obviously uh, Jabba's was a uh, huge um, thing for me as a kid, too, and, and still is. Uh, the 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 making of a saga documentary, um, you know, from Star Wars to Jedi, the making of a saga that Mark Hamill uh, narrates. Um, I destroyed that tape. <laughs> I, I just tore that tape off. What's Mark Hamill's classic line? Uh, a sail barge decree. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Jabba, a stately sail barge decree. Um, so... Oh, good. And I would I would pause my way through those shots of Phil Tippett's workshop and try to figure out what's happening here, you know, because they never tell you everything in those documentaries and they always tell you the wrong thing. You know, they're like, oh, that's made from rubber and it's made from foam latex, which is very different from what people would just call rubber, you know, and I would be a kid and I'd just be going like you know, to the local magic shop or to, you know, the hardware store. It's like, I need rubber. Like, why? Like, I got to make a Gamorrean guard. They're like, a what? Never mind. (laughs) Figure it out. Um, And, uh, and, you know, you'd read magazine articles about how they made stuff and you'd get the effects guy that said something, but the reporter never transcribed it right. And, uh, you know, either that or these were effects guys were, were messing with us and just like <laughs> some kid at home's going to try this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> damn you, Tippett. It's made with bubblegum, kid. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was Bob Burns always tells the story. He always heard people say spirit gum to stick appliances to your face. And he thought they were saying spearmint gum. <laughs> so he used like chewed up gum and he's trying to stick stuff to his face. Like, hey, you know, whatever works, I guess. Um, You'll you'll smell good. It's it's all natural. But um, so Jabba's Palace was interesting. So the the biggest difference was in in that case was we hadn't done the research like we'd done with the cantina. Um, I was always in in love with the scene and I knew all the aliens and I knew a, a lot about them. But I never really dove into it the way we did. Um, for that panel. And we were super lucky uh, to have one of the most fun individuals in the world 
a fellow named Kirk Thatcher uh, on stage with us for that panel. And uh, that made our lives so easy. We got to just go through, we dug through the Lucasfilm archives. We found cool old photos. Kirk gave us a bunch of other cool old photos and we just ran them. And anytime Pablo or I didn't have a fun fact, we would just be like, Kirk, what do you remember about this? Um, and so do you guys know Kirk Thatcher at all? Widely known also as the, the ILM guy, but also the, the punk on the bus in Star Trek four. That's right. From Star Trek four. Yes. Um, uh, and a producer on that movie, also a director and writer with the Muppets for years, puppeteer in his own right too, I believe, um, was a judge on the Henson challenge, the creature shop challenge show. Um, but, but the best part about Kirk is he's just, he is a very, very nice man. He has, uh, had this incredible career. Um, by the way, did you know he, he had a band and they're the ones that played the, I hate you song for the punk on the bus to, to be singing to, or whatever, you know, to be banging his head to. (laughs) Why aren't they playing every Star Trek convention in the world? Right. Like just up there. I hate you. Like, come on, get up. I I would shed a tear. I'd be like, this beautiful. Oh, so good. But so he, so yeah, here's this guy with this amazing life story and, uh, 19 years old or 18 years old when Phil Tippett hired him to work at that studio. It's like, okay, first job, you're going to go make monsters for Star Wars. You're going to paint, you know, most of them. You'll work in the mold shop. You'll run foam on all this stuff. Um, you got a kid? Okay, good. Go ahead. Like, how does, how does that happen, you know? Um, and, and thank goodness they did because he's a treasure. He is so great. So one Jabba's Palace alien creature thing I've always wondered about, and it's not enough information, the light bulb person. Do you have any information on the light bulb person? Um, not much more than is sort of commonly known. Uh, it was you – know, that wasn't the costume. That was an on-set element – uh, to create real world reflections and, and shadows and light, um, that was then to be animated over top with whatever the creature was supposed to be. So the light bulb guy is in there just to create that, those, the, the specular highlights or whatever the heck you want to call it. Um, and to, to give the, the set some interaction with whatever this comped creature was going to be. Some of the humans in Jabba's Palace have fascinated us to no end. There's like a couple guys wearing headbands. There's one guy that looks like Rick Springfield. Yes. <laughs> Were there any UK uglies that inhabited Jabba's Palace? It was it was a UK production. It was. You know, we haven't started to research the humans of Jabba's Palace yet. Um, and I think that could be a whole, a whole other thing. You know, with the cantina stuff, we did uh, one – the the first few panels we did uh there was almost no mention of the humans um because we just hadn't gotten there yet (laughs) um and then when we we didn't know what a can of worms those those humans in the cantina were going to be um and you know it was so amazing when we started going down that path like i i sort of you so, okay, you're in this bar full of all these amazing monsters and you've got stuff made by Stuart Freeborn 
and his team uh, of amazing artists, Chris Tucker, Nick Maley, and um, all of these guys. There are, there are more, Robin Grantham, Sylvia Croft, Kay Freeborn, Graham Freeborn. Um, I just do that because they don't get enough credit. Um, and then you have Rick's team, which is this unbelievable talent in, in the, 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 like the Doug Beswick and Phil Tippett and Rob Botine and Rick and John Berg and Lane Liska making these incredible aliens. So in our mind, you know, it's, this is all flashy and cool and it's like, Oh, the humans, whatever. And, um, I did not expect to, like, I thought, well, all right, let's look at some of the humans, not expecting that to be any kind of fun or an obsession that lasted for, you know, years as we're like now trying to figure out who the heck is in the back corner on the left. There's two guys back there, not a clear shot of either of them. It drives me bananas. We think one might be Sailor Gardner, but anyway, um, as, so with Java's Palace, you know, that's, that is the, uh, that is the undiscovered country, let's say. <laughs> it's good to know that there's there's more panels to come in the years uh, ahead, that there's a lot more to discover. So something to look forward to. If you and, if you and Pablo are ever doing the Humans of Jabba's Palace convention, panel and it's a convention on the moon, just give us a couple days notice and we'll get out yeah. there. Yeah, well, <laughs> We'll get the, the rocket fueled up ahead of time. <laughs> All right, pack up the fountain. We're heading out. <laughs> I just assume you guys bring that cursed fountain everywhere. Yeah, we have to. Here's something I was wondering. So Return of the Jedi comes out. It was after Dark Crystal. How much of, and with your experience with working with Henson on Sesame Street, how much of what Henson was doing with Dark Crystal and innovations of puppetry and design of creatures, basically, how much did that inform what was going on in Return of the Jedi? Do you see that still going on? And with what Neil Scanlon's doing, do you, do you, do you see a line there? I mean, there's, there's definitely, yeah, there's a very clear line to Neil, obviously through his history and all of that, but uh, also in that, and I really do like this, Neil integrates a lot of puppetry aspects and a lot of human-controlled elements, which I'm a big fan of. Um, and his, his creatures are exquisitely crafted. Um, they are all really, really um, well, well executed. Very, very well executed. Um, I think when you go back to 83, um, you know, Yoda uh, at the time uh, during empire was, was this big step forward and was, I believe somewhat concurrent to pre-production of dark crystal. Um, but, uh, the, I, I would say Jabba himself probably owes more to the dark crystal just because he was done in England by Stewart's crew and John Culpinger and those guys. Um, and no doubt had more interaction with, uh, with some of those Henson people. I don't, I, you know, this is, a bit of supposition. Um, when it comes to Tippett's side, uh, stateside creature shop, um, a lot of that was the sheer ingenuity of the people that were working with him. Um, and even, you know, you go to people that worked on empire, uh, especially guys like, um, Doug Baswick, Tom, uh, Tom Sandemann and, and John Berg, who, uh, made the mechanisms for the Tauntaun and for the Adat. Um, you, you've got literal geniuses there who figured out 
how to make a stop motion ad at walker that doesn't topple over that all, as you move all the parts, the little actuators go and everything moves and you can move it one frame at a time and it doesn't break. You know, I'm sure it broke a bunch of times, but I mean, doesn't just explode, you know? Um, but, uh, so you have all that brain power there and, you know, the stuff that they were doing for return of the Jedi, um, is, uh, there's a lot of sort of simple cable mechanisms and a lot of that sort of stuff. The, there's not a ton of really crazy over the top animatronics and certainly years away from things like computer controlled systems and stuff that they were doing at Henson. But, um, the I, I I see more of an influence from Henson on Jabba than I do on the rest of um, the Phil Tip creatures. So the Lucasfilm Archives. I've heard of it. You've been there. You've you've walked into it. Uh, quite a few times, yes. When that big door rolls up, how are you, are, you, are you able to keep it together? Because it's like for work. Did you pee your pants a little bit? What was going on? <laughs> so um, <laughs> the uh, uh, first time I went to the archive. So here's here's an interesting thing about the archives. I, I you know I, I am I. I uh, will always say I am extremely, extremely lucky. And, um, I, in terms of, you know, nerds like us, I am living a charmed life. Um, a lot of times, whether you're, um, uh, a licensee or whatever you're doing, uh, if you go to the archives, uh, often they will bring to you whatever it is you're looking to see. Um, if you're a, a licensee who's recreating a Darth Vader helmet, they will bring the helmet to you and you look at it and that's all you get to see. Um, I, I've been very lucky to get very extensive tours and to spend a fair bit of time there. Um, the people who manage it, um, words can't describe how fantastic they are um, and the enormity of what they have before them. Um to see what they have done, uh, especially just in the last decade, um, is just absolutely stunning. And, and, you know, these are the same people who manage all those traveling exhibits and stuff too, and set all that stuff up. And, uh, oftentimes will um, create mannequins and, and, you know, uh, custom mounts for these things. And, um, sometimes we're lucky and they call us to do that kind of, that kind of thing. But, um, they are supremely talented people, very, very dedicated, and um, their um, their care for these pieces of history is is um, is, is something I am I'm constantly in uh, I am amazed by. Um, so, all of that said, first time I go there, um, lifelong dream of mine to go there. You know prop fan, prop collector, guy who wondered what everything was made from. Um, and this opportunity comes for me to go. Um, I hope they're not listening because so they invited us. Uh, we had helped them out on set um, at um, uh, the, it was the Super Bowl commercial we did uh, that I mentioned earlier. 
they had brought a bunch of the prequel aliens to be in the background of the aliens we made, which were in the foreground, which sounds really weird to say out loud. Oh, okay, no, put the movie used stuff behind ours. Thanks. <laughs> it wasn't our call. That's what they wanted. So, um, but uh, and we helped them out. They didn't have a lot of hands, and and it's tough to keep people alive when you've got you know twenty people in masks on a set. Um, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Um, so I had a big crew there, and, and we would we each helped each other out and keeping each other's people alive and getting them in and out of costume and help them pack up at the end. And uh, one of them said to me, um, uh, "Hey, you know." If you're ever up in, in San Francisco, you should come by. Um, now, my response, which is the correct response, uh, was, I'm going to be there in two weeks. Uh, <laughs> now, again, hope they're not listening. I was not going to be there in two weeks. I <laughs> I pulled that out of my uh, behind. I, But I was not going to let that opportunity pass. And I knew that two weeks was a good time. Like I could still get a deal on a flight. If I said one week, it was going to cost me. Um, and so I went home the next morning. We had our flight back and I uh, immediately booked a flight to San Francisco. <laughs> so I made sure they were going to be there. I was like, oh, I'm going to be there in two weeks. I think it's either this date or this date. I have to check when I get home. Like, oh, we're there those days. Oh, great. I'll let you know. And um, I'll see if I can fit you in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I penciled them in and I, I considered it for a while. And I thought, you know, they'd probably be disappointed or offended if I didn't go. They were nice enough. Like, oh, totally. Yeah. You don't want to <laughs> offend them. Um, <laughs> twist my arm, guys. Ooh, ow. Uh, so I so, yeah, I hopped on a flight uh, and went to go see the Lucasfilm archives at the Skywalker ranch. Um, like you do. And so I went in, so had you guys seen the, um, the magic of myth tour or, you know, the, mm -hmm. the props that were on display at celebration Four, any oh. of that stuff. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. We're, we're big fans of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you see that you read the Chronicles book, you know, the, Star Wars source book from the role-playing game inside and out. You probably have the Star Wars to Indiana Jones, the best of the Lucasfilm archives book, um, which uh, is another really cool book for anybody who wants to go out on Amazon and buy a book now. Um, the You get this sense, and also myself, I have restored a bunch of original Star Wars movie props. I own a bunch of Star Wars original movie props. I have tons of friends with original Star Wars movie props. So clearly I'm going in and I'm, well, this is going to be good, but I've seen so much. You know, <laughs> I mean, were you, were you doing that to like psych yourself down a little bit though, a little bit? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. You figured me out. Yeah. And, and I'm always doing that sort of thing. Like, okay, no, this isn't going to be, it's just going to be okay. It'll be cool. I've seen tours of the archives like on video and stuff too, like the one from the old laser disc and pause the hell out of it. Um, I have, so, you know, I got this, this is, you know, whatever. Oh boy. So, um, I, I think you can tell where this is leading. Uh, now I didn't pee my pants. Um, <laughs> But it, it was definitely a possibility. Uh, I went before I went in, thank goodness. Uh, it was 
it is so much, uh, there is so much there. The overload is so extreme. Um, it's really hard to put into words and, you know, they had discovered so much since the tour that I saw of it on video. Um, and they had uncovered old boxes and unpacked things they didn't know they had. And they had organized so much. And um, it was absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, there's no other way to put it. Um, and again, to have to top it off, just to met these wonderful people. Um, which, you know, they're the true treasures in that archive right there. Uh, it was, uh, just a, a life-changing experience to go through there as a, as a prop fan, as a makeup and monster fan, as a Star Wars fan, uh, once in a lifetime opportunity, that, that first impression. Uh, so yes, uh, really, really special moment. When, when you think back and you're walking through, what was one thing you found or you saw that blew your mind either how it was constructed or the, that it even existed. Oh boy. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think if there is, I don't know if there's anything that's like a, you know, supposed to say, not supposed to say anything like that. But um, I'll say that one of the things that probably uh, that, that made a, a really big impression on me was um, Peter Mayhew's Chewbacca costume. Um, we have since gotten to research that much more closely. And we have since uh, had a number of sort of um, Chewbacca related projects that, that we've done um, that have um, resulted in a serious Wookiee obsession on my part. Uh, and I justify it because he is in the cantina. So technically he's a cantina alien. I am allowed to be obsessed with him. Um, <laughs> It's all how we categorize things. Um, so, uh, but but seeing that suit up close and uh, that 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 hand tied knit suit that Kay Freeborn made um, is was really really uh, cool to see and to see the the mask, of course. And um, I had I had previously seen. Uh, another Chewbacca mask. It was the one that was turned into Mala for the holiday special, actually, um, which literally come uh, came from Stuart with an apology letter that he got from Stan Winston because Stan didn't realize Stuart was going to need it for Empire. So Stan took the Wookiee mask that they sent him and turned it into Chewie's wife, Mala. Um, and then when he sent them back, Stuart got one Chewie and one Mala instead of two Chewies. And he was not happy about that. Uh, but he, what was really cool with Stuart was his pack rat. And he kept the letter that Stan Winston sent him apologizing for changing the mask. Um, just saying, yeah, I had no idea you needed to use it again. Um, and that just goes to that FX guy mindset of like, well, we used it, rip it apart. Let's use it for something new. Um, Sort of went off track. What was I saying? Uh, Talking about Mala's never off track. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the right track. I did see prior. So the Mala mask, and then also one of Stewart's 2001 ape masks. 
And I got to see that with the skin off. So I could see the under skull and how he made that and the mechanisms and the sheer brilliance and simplicity of what Stuart accomplished um, in inventing and reinventing the sort of idea of this self-actuated mask, which had been around since forever, but he really took it to the next level and did it with such cleverness and uh, interesting use of material. And uh, um, so seeing that and then seeing how that was turned into Chewy and how it was a different sculpt and a different skull, but the same concept and the same similar mechs and, um, and, and um, how that worked out was um, really eye-opening and just, oh, man, I, I, very, very cool. I've mentioned I'm lucky, right? I, I said that earlier. This episode comes out on um, May the 1st. It's almost May 4th. Anything with Regal Robot listeners should be aware of going on with uh, May... May the 4th? May the 4th? Why, that's that's Star Wars Day. Uh, yeah, so, um, well, since it's only a few days away, um, I think I can, I can give you guys a scoop. Uh, this hasn't been announced yet, uh, but we are going to run um, a big May the 4th special. Um, and uh, for that special on Regal Robot, uh, using the coupon code May the 4th, uh, clever, uh, people starting, starting the fourth, will be able to save 25% on the entire collection of, uh, Mandalorian skull art that we have based on the Mythosaur, AKA Bantha, AKA Boba Fett skull, um, that, uh, we've got these four different sculptures of that piece that uh will be on sale and we're also we have a full line of these cafe tables right now with really cool printed tops there's the hollow chest table death star 2 uh mandalorian crest off of boba's chest armor um and everybody's favorite the death star counter downer thingy from the rebel base on yavin 4 um which chris trevis did the art for which is just super cool uh, and these tables are just two ninety nine, and now they'll be even cheaper than that. And you can get them uh, on regalrobot.com. And uh, they're available at a pub height, like a cafe table at 42 inches, and even at like table height if you just want something for your house at 30 inches. Everybody, everybody needs furniture. I, you do. And why not have something that reflects what you love? That's what I say. All right. So let's go rapid fire. Your favorite Ralph McQuarrie painting. Oh, Oh, man. Wow. How could you? No one can pick that. Um, It would change from day to day, for sure. Uh, But the the confrontation at the cantina is up there. Um, But I uh, also have a real soft spot for uh, the, the painting he did of Luke in the Rancor, and I think uh, Gamorrean is in the Rancor's hand uh, from Return of the Jedi. And it's just because it was a two-page spread in a behind-the-scenes magazine that I got in, like, 1983 and still have and flip through every once in a while just to relive the wonderfulness of that time. What's the best Star Wars beard? Oh, 
Um, <sighs> the best beard. I could tell you who the best mutton chops are, and that's Chief Bast um, by far. And anybody that says that guy from Rebels, they're wrong. It's Bast. <laughs> um, the best beard. The best beard has to go to Obi Wan. Uh, episode four, Obi Wan. It all goes back to that. That's the that's the inaugural beard. But I mean, there's probably a case to be made for George. That could be the original Star Wars beard, the Ob. The Ob. <laughs> That's how he got the name. <laughs> this little one's not worth the effort. It's you know, called Obi Wan Kenobi. Oh, you mean old beard? <laughs> That's me, right? Yeah. Well, that's a name I've not heard in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I know that beard. Uh, your favorite Star Wars making of documentary? Uh, it, it has to be the the one we talked about before, from Star Wars to Jedi: The Making of a Saga. What's your favorite Star Wars action figure when you were a kid? And what's your favorite Star Wars, I guess, collectible or action figure today? So Blue Snaggletooth when I was a kid, and I loved him even before I knew he was special. I had no idea. Like I was a kid. I was five. I didn't know that it was rare or different. I just knew he was cool. He had kiss boots. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He did. Um, if you're talking collectibles, do you do we qualify that as like would a movie prop be a collectible or would only like a, a product be a collectible? That's a that's a that's a deep question. <laughs> you're rapid firing back at us. I would say whatever you love. Is that too is that too corny? Yeah. We can't tell you who to love. <laughs> um I I have um an original uh, cantina band mask and hands that were used in the movie that I, I just, I'm hard pressed to think of anything else star Wars that beats it. Um, there is one other, um, another mask that's, well, they're all special. Oh gosh. It's like choosing my kids. How dare you? <laughs> um, I, I'll stick with the band. Okay. Final answer band. Can I phone a friend? Yeah. Um, <laughs> no final answer band guy. Yeah, there we go. Your favorite new sequel Disney era Star Wars alien? That's tough. <laughs> um, that's a good question. Let's see. You can even include anything you've seen from Solo so far. Yeah, well, I, I, I yeah, the six eyes guy from Solo is kind of neat, but the one eyed guy from Solo, I I like a lot. I like that. I, you know, the other one I like from uh, Force Awakens, the. Um, the captain of the ship, the red guy with the flary helmet, um, he's got a real like he's got a strong look. I like I like monsters and, and masks that that pop that read in an instant as distinct. Um, and like you know he could you know if I mean we wouldn't say he's from the ugly agency, but you know that sort of thing. I like I like characters that pop. Well, that leads into this next one. What would be your favorite prequel creature? I like what the prequels did. Uh, I, I like most of the prequel recreations of the sequel aliens, but I, I wouldn't include any of those. I like, I really do like the prequel Nikto, especially. Uh, it's kind of faithful, but a little more detailed. Um, favorite prequel alien? Um, Liam Neeson. No. Um, <laughs> It might be the Nemoidians because I love the Duros as an alien. The Duros scared the hell out of me as a kid. I had the storybook 
and I would always look at the two-page spread with the Star Wars alien, the Cantina aliens, and I would look at the Duros like through fingers, you know, like because eh, the two of them are just looking at the camera really intensely. Um, so I'm going to say the Nemordians because they're they're are reimagined Duros, and, and and I like their eyes, the squiggly eyes, like goat eyes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good, good answer. Because I'm a, I'm a huge, I'm a huge Nemodian fan, and I think people don't realize how lucky we are to have a movie where one of the main characters is basically a rubber face alien with bad lips, <laughs> and he's a star. So we don't get that. We don't get that every day. <laughs> What's uh, favorite John Williams? Oh, uh, that's that's actually kind of a toss up between two things, but only because of two different styles. Uh, gosh, now I'm going to have to say three, darn it. Um, okay. So, uh, Cantina band number two, I like a lot. Um, but in terms of more traditional movie music, uh, it's gotta be the asteroid chase. Uh, that is some of the most powerful music out there that's ever been put to film. I do love, however, Ben's death and the TIE fighter attack. I don't know what the breakdown is on the newer track listings because I know they've re-released it a bunch, but on the album, like record album that I had, <laughs> that was Ben's Death and Tie Fighter Attack always got me, um, as does the, the buildup at the end of Empire, just before the credits kick in. Um, outstanding little section of music right there, and damned if it doesn't make the little hair on your arm go up and give you the, the little like... I'm not crying. You're crying. Just listening to it. I'll often like be driving and that'll come on and it'll just be like, I love star Wars so much. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, I got one more. That's that's, you're probably the only person to ask this to best star Wars feet. Ooh. Oh man. Uh, okay. (laughs) Let's see here. (laughs) Um, there's not a lot of feet out there. Yoda's feet are pretty awesome though. Um, there are also one foot repeated. He's only got one sculpt, so he doesn't really have a left or a right. Uh, you're blowing my mind, Tom. You're blowing my mind. Here's, here's what I got. R2's feet, but only when Kenny Baker's feet are actually in the R2 feet running through the dryer hose. That's my favorite feet is Star Wars. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Who's your favorite member of KISS? Oh, it's got to be Ace. And if nothing else, because he shared boots with Blue Snaggletooth. But yeah, it's Space Ace. I had all the records. I got them for the album covers. I mean, you know, <laughs> it was also the, the 70s and 80s, so I'm allowed. Can't believe they took the makeup off. You know, there, there's, there's some there's some hidden gems out there in the makeupless years. There are, there are. No, and, and um, oh gosh. What about, you know, I did like Vinnie Vincent with the onk. Like, I thought that was a cool makeup, like right at the tail end of the makeup. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, but, you know, I always go back to Ace. But I'm a guitar guy. I play guitar. So that's a like I always connect with whoever's playing the guitar in the band usually. Not Paul Stanley? Uh, he does play, but he's also Paul Stanley. So whatever. <laughs> Sorry, Kiss fans. No, I, I'm, I like him just fine. I was always like Kiss was good. Van Halen was was big for me. Um, Motley Crue was big for a while. Twisted Sister. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> total other thing. So wait, who who's your favorite '80s hair metal bands? Gabe. Ooh, probably the first two Motley Crue albums. <laughs> the first two is all you need. Right. The first two. 
oh my god that first album is so raw the recording on that is so good yeah and uh vince neil's got full-on helium voice at that time what the heck yeah there's <laughs> there's some notes in that where it's just like what's going on here that take me to the top where it's like geez <laughs> Have you ever heard of a band called Nitro with their album OFR? I've heard of them, but I I've, I could not name a single song from the album. That's 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 probably just fine. They I, I, I look at OFR as a masterpiece of of music and of art, and uh, I will have to look it up. Don't yeah feel yeah. Oh, with full understanding of what I'm getting into, yeah. Were you guys in for uh, like so when Extreme comes out like later in the night uh, the eighties and into the nineties like did you follow like any of that or did you like did you drift into you know the uh, the sort of Nirvana Soundgarden uh, Pearl Jam vibe at that point because like you're just younger enough than me that you could have made the turn. Oh yeah, my my senior photo I was wearing a flannel shirt, so say no more. Oh, that answers that question. Yeah, because yeah, I—that's another guy for me—is Nuno from Extreme, and I just—he's done a whole bunch of solo stuff since. That's just really cool. Well, the Extreme stuff's all neat too. But well, I went the other direction and got into to death metal and stuff. So nice <laughs> respect. <Yeah. laughs> I, I kind of so I stuck with uh, definitely stuck with Van Halen through all that time, and they were still putting out good stuff into the nineties, even with Hagar. Sorry, guys, um, but. Uh, I, for me, it was just like anything that had a guitar. I did respect a lot of the um, a lot of the grunge stuff just because there was this weird sort of turn to like I, I felt like there was a touch of late sixties um, classic rock cinema, like mentality to some of the grunge stuff in that. It was stripped down. It was using a lot of amps from that time, guitars from that time. There was a tone to it that was sort of like that, but with this modern, you know, sort of don't give a crap take. But, um, and I mean, don't give a crap in like rock and roll kind of way, not like they were bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, okay, but hand to God, I, when Nirvana came out, I, I, it didn't connect for me. However, I watched the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit and, Looked at a friend of mine and I was just like, I can't get into this. But that drummer is freaking amazing. Like that guy's going places. I swear I said this. And I it's and, you know, and to this day now, you know, Foo Fighters and everything Dave Grohl does is just amazing to me. And oh gosh, speaking of Kiss, did you guys see the Kiss Guy video? Wait, what's the Kiss Guy video? You didn't see the Kiss Guy video? <laughs> what yeah. Okay. So if you haven't seen it at home or you guys, uh, go look up, just look up Dave Grohl kiss guy. It's a guy who has had kiss makeup on and he pulls him up on stage and the guy just shreds and he's, he crushes the song. It was so good. Uh, I think he played monkey wrench. Um, but man, like for anybody that ever picked up an instrument or listened to a rock and roll record, how is that not your like literal dream that you've had? You know, you're in the audience. Oh, sorry, guys. Eddie Van Halen stubbed his toe. Does anyone out there know Hot for Teacher? Yeah. <laughs> I do, guys. Got you covered. So, that's the only dream you have left. Everything. <laughs> 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 oh. you've, you've accomplished all the other ones 
if that's the case, then I, I probably I can probably still go happy. No time soon, though. I like that that guy was wearing Kiss makeup at a Foo Fighters concert. Oh yeah, <laughs> he just wants people to know. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, so fun, though. So fun. Um, all right, so wait now. Now we're now I'm into this whole like like uh, rapid fire question thing. I got you on the spot. What else can I ask here? Um, favorite of the uglies? Is it too obvious to say were? Uh, it it isn't for anyone that's ever actually seen his headshot and realized how little of that was makeup. I, I go for the guy with the flattened nose, uh, Bobby Ramsey. Yes. Who, uh, oh, that profile shot. I just am never prepared for it. Okay. Uh, we've done uglies. Um, <laughs> I was going to go real deep cut. Like, Favorite job of the hut performer. Um, oh, that's easy. Back, backwards and forwards. Backwards and forwards. There you go. You are correct. <laughs> Mike Edmonds in the tail. For the win. (laughs) (laughs) Second place, second place, the smoke is for Jabba. That's right. If he's drinking port, it'd be a perfect job. Yeah. (laughs) I did say that was my favorite documentary, right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, did you guys both, and I I don't know why I'm prolonging this, but uh, did you guys both, it's not my show, um, did you both keep all of your toys from when you were a kid? Because I assume you each had, you know, fairly extensive collections of Star Wars toys from being a kid. Probably well past when you were. Yeah, I still have most of my – I think I have everything that survived. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I still have everything. I, uh, I, I managed to keep most of mine. I lost one box in a move. Um, and it was – there's a couple of things that were really special to me too. Is some of the first things I got. It was a Land of the Jawas playset and a, a Luke Land speeder. Um, I did. I've since picked one up, but it's not the one I had. So it's you know a little bit, a little bit, uh, a little bit of a hurt there. But uh, and my Darth Vader Tie Fighter was in that box too. I, I just out of all the things to freaking lose, could I not lose like all of my underwear? You know, or <laughs> like something I can live without. But ah. Uh, had to be that box, but I did. I, I everything else I did manage to keep, and then I've I've been picking up stuff in the meantime because why wouldn't you? <laughs> I've got, what I've got a job and money. Um, save for a house or buy another land speeder. You know, you can live in the land speeder. That's right. Here's one for you. What your favorite George Lucas look? Ooh. Um, I think, you know, George Lucas Dubak Rider. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the sunglasses. I like the aviator sunglasses on him. Yeah. I, I was thinking that is cool, Lucas. Cool, Lucas. I like it. Yep. Yep, that's mine. <laughs> this has been awesome. Fantastic. So much fun. Thank you. No, I had a blast. So what, what was that Regal Robot code again for our listeners? So you can write it down. So it will be, um, it'll be on our site on regalrobot.com. And here's the real trick. Follow Regal Robot on things like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, because we're at Regal Robot. It's really easy to find. And that's where you're always going to find all this stuff. It's, you know, we're going to share it there. Uh, we love interacting with our fans. We love when people buy our stuff and post their photos of it too. We always try and share those and we've got tons of people that do it. And I, it's just like the coolest thing, like, okay, 
I'm a kid who used to buy Star Wars stuff. And now it's like, I'm making Star Wars stuff that other people are getting and bringing into their home and their lives and then sharing it back. And it's like, absolutely blows my brain that that's a thing. Um, but, uh, the code will be simply May the 4th. Um, it'll be active on Friday morning and, uh, it's, it's going to be cool. And then the other place you can check out is tomspinadesigns.com. Uh, we're always updating. We usually update one or two times a week. We have months and months of updates in the can right now that we have to get up on the website because we've been super, super busy restoring all sorts of movie props and making a lot of really fun, cool stuff. Um, so if you like fun, cool stuff, uh, check us out there and check us out on at Tom Spina designs on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, um, wherever else look for us. You'll probably find us. That's what I recommend it. I follow them on everything. You guys post some fantastic stuff. It's always a highlight and scrolling through and like pictures of somebody's dog or something. And then like, Oh my God, was that a Harry and the Henderson's mask? What's going on? <laughs> Who's posting that? Tom Spina. I knew it. Yep. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that guy. Uh. Well, thank you. I appreciate you following and all our other new followers who just now went on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and followed both at Regal Robot and at Tom Spina Designs. So nice of them to have done that with no prodding or salesmanship at all. Just did it um, on their own. Yeah, yeah. That was really cool, guys. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And the podcast thing was all right, too. So thanks. Skywalker X-Wing pilot from the Star Wars action figures collection, each sold separately. I'm jealous. Want to buy a droid? Sure, what you got? It's the new R5-D4 and the power droid. So. And here's Greedo, Han Solo, and Walrus Man. You've had it now, Solo. Yeah. Greedo, it's Ben Kenobi and his lightsaber. We're in trouble. Let's get out of here. Luke Skywalker X-Wing pilot, R5-D4, Greedo, and other action figures sold separately. New from Kenner. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. Listeners, you should leave us a review on iTunes, like we say every single week. It helps us show out. Tell them your your favorite feat in Star Wars too. They like they like that for some reason. Put that in your review on iTunes. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, check us out on BlastPointsPodcast.com, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and keep downloading the podcast. And that about wraps up episode number one hundred and twenty-one. Me and Gabe and the fantastic Tom Spina. So much fun. Thank you again. Thank you. All right, folks. Thank you for listening. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you.
Well, I think I'm out of questions. <laughs> next time I'll come prepared. If there's a next time, I don't know if you guys want me back, but I'll I'll jot a few down ahead of time so I can really hit you. You're the you're the new third host, Tom. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll be calling you every Wednesday. That's fine. Yeah, I'll just uh, I'll pencil it in. <laughs> May the force be with all of you.